Welcome back to the Camp House Podcast, a resource that is here to help connect, inform, and inspire you about what's happening here in your community in Chattanooga. I'm your host, Matt Busby, director of the Camp House, and this is the first episode of season four, exploring housing and development here in Chattanooga. Now, as we begin this conversation, what we are really discussing is growth, the growth of our city and the growth of our community. And we believe it is a fundamentally good thing that our city is growing. Indeed, we need to be growing. Cities are always changing and evolving, and in so many ways, growth is a sign of health and vitality. Take a garden as a metaphor. A garden is always changing for better or for worse. Either plants are growing or dying or weeds are creeping in. A garden doesn't remain stagnant for long. And so growth in a garden is a good thing. However, for a garden to realize its full potential, it must be cared for, managed, and stewarded well. The same is true of our city and community. Growth is important. It's a sign of health. However, if we leave it unchecked, if it's not stewarded well, it can become unmanageable and never realize its full potential. And so today we are having a conversation on responsible development, a conversation that begins to ask the question of what does good growth in a city look like? Are all forms of growth good? Or are there forms of development that are less than ideal for creating a city that is resilient and sustainable? So to help answer those questions, I was able to sit down with three guests for today's conversation. Eric Myers of the Chattanooga Design Studio, Jim Johnson of Chattanoogans for Responsible Development, and Justin Tiersen, a city planner who's worked both in the public and the private sectors. To begin with, we discuss historical patterns of development, examining how cities have traditionally grown and developed. We then discuss the technological changes of the 20th century that fundamentally changed our cities. And then finally, we wrap up the conversation by discussing principles of responsible development for the 21st century in order to understand how we can all be good stewards and help create a city that is flourishing, sustainable, and resilient. We celebrate those buildings, we celebrate that architecture, we celebrate that development pattern, but yet day after day after day in the United States, in Chattanooga, we're not building anything like that. Actually, I have a joke that I uh, say in a lot of our educational programs that uh, what we're building in cultural centers, Main Street America today, is as interesting as a festival of a hundred cover bands. Who in the world would go to a festival like that when it's laddered up and, and uh, stretched out over a mile long? And that's really the, one of the most damning implications of what we have today is that we're stretching our cities further than we ever have. We can't afford the resources that it takes to support those, uh, those places publicly. Um, and cities across the United States are struggling with it. All right, gentlemen, well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hey. Hey. Well, today I've got, um, again, one of, my, one of my bigger episodes. Every now and then I do this to myself, and I think it's a, it's a bit of punishment <laughs> to edit some of these larger episodes. But I have three guests on today uh, to talk about responsible development. And that is uh, Jim Johnson, Justin Tierson, and Eric Myers. Uh, and so, you know, real briefly, I'd love just to go around and for you guys to introduce yourselves um, and kind of what brings you to this conversation. And so, Jim, uh, start with you. 
Well, I live in North Chattanooga. I've lived there for about 20 years and uh, have observed a lot of things happening in North Chattanooga and elsewhere. Uh, you know, I have no background in development, but I do have background in being a, you know, an active citizen. So I, I've observed a lot of things, been frustrated by a lot of things. And uh, I guess almost about a year ago, I, I started a Facebook group called uh, Chattanoogans for Responsible Development that has taken off big time. Yeah, that's great. And we're actually going to talk more about that organization at the end of the podcast. And there will be a link down in the show notes of this episode uh, where people can um, explore that and maybe even join the group. Justin. Yeah, so I'm a city planner by training, and I've worked both on the public side and the private side. And I live in Chattanooga, so I have a vested interest in seeing Chattanooga grow in a responsible way. And having worked on both sides, it's been fascinating. I think I may bring a perspective as to how both sides operate. Eric, you're, you're not, this isn't your first time, but go ahead and tell people who you are. I'm Eric Myers. I'm the executive director of a local nonprofit urban design studio called the Chattanooga Design Studio. And our mission is to improve the quality of life for all Chattanoogans uh, by facilitating, educating about, and advocating for excellence in urban design. Very good. Uh, yeah, so we kind of uh, brought this group together to have this conversation about responsible development. And I, and I think it's going to be kind of difficult almost for us to have that conversation without sort of understanding the way um, development has happened, uh, both historically uh, and, then, and then really into the past 50 to 70 years. Um, and so, you know, Eric, uh, you, we were talking about this earlier. Uh, what, what is, um, we'll talk about development, like the history of it. Like, how did we used to develop cities? Uh, for, for literally centuries uh, across the world, in the United States in particular, cities were built by primarily urban form, uh, increment by increment, and in very small increments. Um, citizens decided to build buildings uh, that formed uh, the public realm, that formed streets and blocks and squares and plazas. And those buildings were built out of community pride, out of a love of design, a love of architecture, a love of building, primarily. And then commercial institutions were literally inserted into those buildings, such as, you know, you can think of a Woolworths in a downtown or something like that. That's the way that primarily our communities were built for centuries. In the past 80, 70 years, that development pattern has trended in a different manner, largely by creating single uses for primary commercial use. Yeah. And that trend really in large part has been a, a, a massive, a massive demogra demographic shift in the way that we understand our communities. So that model over time changed and there were several catalysts that caused that change into the development that we see today. Part of that catalyst was the difference in financing the opportunities available, but also the introduction of other mechanisms that allowed for us to expand out of the city. The invention of the car allowed for us to go farther. Garden city type of designs, which created this mentality of what we think of today as everybody wants to have their house with their backyard. This type of expansion required us to go larger. And then as we were able to identify the financial offsets, we were able to take a look at, say, oh, well, we can buy six or eight or ten acres of land out in the periphery and then build a new subdivision and provide this dream house, which is what people wanted at that time period, and still to this day, some people want, and be able to build it out there for fractions on the cost of what it would be to build the same number of units inside. 
Yeah. And so as these catalysts started to happen, we see a shift in what people want. There's a lot of wanting to leave the city. At the time, cities were still very dirty. Um, we had issues that people would say didn't exist out in the suburbs. Well, a lot of it was because people were leaving the cities and this is where white flight comes in and all these type of unfortunate situations where you see people with the fiscal capacity had the ability to leave the city and that has just grown and grown and as we have diversified our capacity to build commercial development we'd be able to bring all these new amenities out to them which just has encouraged that to happen and we see more and more growth where we would not traditionally see it in terms of happening in we're losing our rural land to the suburban style of development. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's been all kinds of technology that has really shifted the way American cities have, have developed over the years. You know, the, the, the most famous and impactful of which has been the automobile. Um, but Eric, I want to return to something you had said. I mean, you were describing we used to build buildings and then populate those buildings with all different kinds of businesses. But now we, we have a business and then we custom build a building for that business, correct? Correct. Right. Yes. So like big box stores, this is the big example of a, of a big box store. So instead of Woolworth, the way um, Woolworths used to develop would just be there'd be a downtown building. They would basically take up the entire bottom floor and there'd be offices above. But now, I mean, part of the reason Woolworths is no longer around are because of big box stores um, who were able to build incredibly cheap buildings out in the suburbs, which really where a lot of people were located uh, at the time. And, um, and, and it really killed a lot of downtown real retail. And so we really are coming to, I feel like we're coming to the end of a certain life cycle of this development pattern that Justin just described. Um, you know, starting in the 1950s, you know, all the way through the 80s, um, this, this um, you know, it's been termed white flight, suburbanization of America. We have all these different terms for that. Um, and right now, it, it feels like we really are coming to the end of a life cycle uh, in terms of we can look back at this point and see what was really good about that, what was really bad about that. I mean, Justin, you said, you know, you talked about how cities were actually really dirty, uh, and they were. They were objectively uh, dirty places, you know, back before the 1950s. Um, however, uh, there's, there's been a lot of negative ramifications of that form of development. The thing it's really important for us to understand as we begin to talk about um, responsible development. Uh, so what are some of those negative um, impacts of the, the form of development we've had over the past 50 to 70 years? I think I can take that on. Uh, critically, I think it's confounding that um, a very, very, very wide uh, segment of our population would say that, uh, and this is across America, um, you can go, you can travel to any city in America and usually you'll find a Main Street America with a historic intact Main Street um, that is beloved and usually um, designated in some manner, celebrated um, and, and, and has community cultural value. We celebrate those buildings, we celebrate that architecture, we celebrate that development pattern but yet, day after day after day in the United States, in Chattanooga, we're not building anything like that. Actually, I have a joke that I uh, say in a lot of ed our educational programs that uh, what we're building in cultural centers, Main Street America today, is as interesting as a festival of 100 cover bands. Yeah. Who in the <laughs> world would go to a festival like that when it's laddered up and, and uh, stretched out over a mile long? And that's really... Uh, one of the most damning implications of what we have today is that we're stretching our cities further than we ever have. Mm -hmm. We can't afford the resources that it takes to support 
those, uh, those places publicly. Um, and cities across the United States are struggling with it. Let me piggyback off of that. So the unintended consequences of some of the development that we've seen has been in terms of fiscal costs, which Eric kind of hit on, which is that we are starting to see that we have to have a larger spread and how we can handle fire and police coverage for a smaller group of people because people are living in larger lots, which means that fire trucks have to go farther Police officers have to go farther. Our type of development have encouraged us to build more cul-de-sacs and to build more private inward-looking development. The unintended consequence of that means that there's not through streets, which we means we get traffic. And that's actually why I think one of the biggest things as to why we're seeing a shift in the type of development people want to see is traffic. The others are that it expands our infrastructure, sewer, roads. Why is it so expensive to, to handle a pothole? because you're not handling one pothole, there are hundreds of thousands of potholes. And the reason for this is that it's no longer a small piece of street in front of a building that's got 20 families, and those 20 families are paying to maintain that one street. It's one long piece of street that may have four families, and now we're paying, and they're paying taxes for that. So the money just doesn't go as far, and material costs have gone up over time. Yeah, I'd say there's also somewhat more hidden uh, negative impacts of traffic in particular. You know, it used to be that, uh, you know, in the olden days, you could leave where you live, go out for a safe walk or a safe ride on your bike. Now people are caught inside their, in their homes. They don't feel comfortable going out because of traffic or just because they feel cut off from society overall. Uh, and what they also, you know, I, I think also that leads to a lower quality of life. You know, people, I think, are more anxious. People are... Uh, you know, having more diseases. You know, and I know in Chattanooga, one of the things that is being looked at is where are the, you know, the higher obesity rates, where are the higher rates of diabetes, and looking at you know, putting green spaces in there. And I realize that green space is not specifically development, but it's part of the holistic approach to development. Yeah, I think there's all kinds of uh, fiscal issues that Justin was touching on uh, when it comes to traditional, or not, I don't want to say traditional, but the form of development we've had over the past 50, 70 years. Uh, but yeah, the social impact of that is enormous. I mean, we're talking about cul-de-sacs and inward-facing development. Um, you know, I, I actually gave a, a lecture for a UTC group, a uh, college minister group, um, talking about the lack of um, citizenship. And, um, and, and I really do tie it to technology a lot because millennials and Z generation today get criticized all the time because they don't know how to socialize because they're always on their devices. And, um, and I wanted to tell them, I was like, listen, uh, this isn't your fault. This has been a pattern for generations now. And, and, and the, the, the primary um, driver of, of social isolationism and the lack of citizenship has been the automobile and the way we build houses now. Right? And so I showed them um, the differences between you know, houses that had front porch that were built to the street versus um, the way we build houses today with giant garages to where you never have to interact with your neighbor anymore. Right? Um, and so, yeah, I think the social impact of the way we've been developing over the past um, you know, 50 years has been huge for us. Uh, and we're kind of just now beginning, like I said, I think we're at a, a moment where we're really beginning to wrestle with the implications of, of what we've been building over the past 50 years. Yeah, I really appreciate you uh, bringing that up because I think that so many people, so many ordinary people believe that are not involved in the building industry. They, they believe that things just happen because they do. Mm -hmm. And the truth of the matter is that we as citizens plan, design, regulate, and then build 
and design and plan and regulate yeah. over and over and over again. Yeah. These things happen very intentionally. They're very thought through. They're very thought about. Um, and they're highly regulated. We have been regulating the built form that we have since the mid-50s. Um, and that pattern of land is increasingly isolated, increasingly um, monocultured, not diverse, mm -hmm. um, and requiring the car more and more. And so we're seeing things like um, in the 2015 study from the Centers for Disease Control, um, it's no wonder that a quarter of uh, school-aged children under 12 are obese. Yeah. Because they're not walking. They're using a car to do mm -hmm. every single thing that they do in their daily life. And, and I think this would be a good point to kind of interject and say that doesn't mean that we're saying that there, or at least I'm not saying that there's bad things in building a, a, sub, a suburban development. But, and I think this gets to what responsible development is, that we have to be responsible in how we handle our infrastructure and what the, what the, costs are and the trade-offs are in the development that we build, everybody, in my belief, in a city should have the ability to live the lifestyle that they want. Some people want to live urban, some people want to live suburban, some people want to live rural. And I think those should be all available. But the way we build them, if I live in a suburban area where, I have, uh, where I'm going to expect to drive most of my places, then we should also build in a way to make sure that that is a capacity. But we should also think about the other components that come with that. You should be, still be able to walk to where you need to go. There should be mass transit available for people who can't afford the car, who may not want to use a car and things like that. And all these things are compatible with the suburban style development that is, I want my house with my backyard. But we have to think critically in how we build if that is what we want. Because if we build on one side of the street one type of development and then a different type on the other side of the street, well, we've created conflicting lifestyles and conflicting needs and there's no way we can service both of those. Mm. So how do we make sure that we transition from one to the other? Yeah. Yeah, that brings to mind something that, that I've been thinking about a lot, which is you know, most of our regulations, most of our ordinances, and most of our approaches to development, in, in my mind, uh, you know, tend to be more stick than carrot. You, know, you cannot do this. Mm. Whereas you know, if there were you know, various incentives to do things in a way that is you know, that we view as responsible, we had a more of a long-term goal. And what what are the carrots that we can dangle out there that would encourage developers to do that? You know, where they do it and how they do it. Uh, you know, if there were, for example, uh, you know, incentives to to go into neighborhoods that are not necessarily covered with steep slopes versus going into more higher uh, higher revenue or higher income areas with steep slopes. Uh, you know, it might be might be entirely different. You know, or you know, really any kind of development, give them give them incentives to do it the right way, as opposed to tell them all the different reasons why they can't do something. Sure. Yeah, and I, and I think the other piece about uh, we're talking about like the the sort of development we're used to at this point um, is and it, it is that fiscal responsibility that Justin was mentioning. Like I, I I honestly don't know. I don't think I can answer this question. But like, I honestly don't know that, that citizens understand exactly where roads come from, right, and how roads are paid for. Um, but all of that is money that is coming from us, from our tax base. Um, and again, you know, we, we've talked about this in the past, I think, with an with a episode with the design studio. You know, when you're building a, a, a mile of infrastructure in a downtown core, that's really easy to pay for because you're generating a lot of tax revenue based on that property because of the density. 
But when you move out to other areas, when you're building um, you know, a suburban neighborhood or even building roads in a rural, that cost is the same amount of money, uh, but it's gotta be generated from multiple different sources in order to just pay for that. And, and that's just the one-time cost of building it. Uh, the cost of maintenance, of maintenance on these things, uh, it, it gets to be out of control. And, and I think that's why this is a really important conversation to have now about responsible development. One of the things that, that I've always liked is there's a, an urban planner named Brent Toldarian, and he has this really great quote of, you want to know what the value of a city is, look at their budget, because the budget reflects your values. Yeah. And part of, part of me automatically kind of gets up and like, well, why, I mean, there are all these social policies that are so important to our values, but at the end of the day, it's how much money do we have and what do we need to spend it on and where should it go is a direct influence on the values of how our city gets built, how we continue to take care of our city, how we preserve parts of our city, where we want to see growth and where we don't. Hey friends, I just want to take a quick moment and let you know about an exciting new partnership that we have at the Camp House. And that's our partnership with Bread and Butter. So now when you come in and you get a great cup of coffee and you're coming in to have meetings or to get work done or just to sit and read a book, you can get an incredible cinnamon roll, a muffin, quiche, sandwiches, uh, and even some vegan and vegetarian options from one of the best bakeries in Chattanooga. So we're really excited about this new relationship we have with Bread and Butter, and we're excited for you to come in and try it. So do that this week. Come by, get a cinnamon roll, take it back to your office, share it with your friends, and taste for yourself what we are so excited about. Well, okay, so as we, you know, kind of wrap up this discussion of it really feels like we're in a bit of a mess sometimes. And, uh, and I think when people look at Chattanooga right now, uh, you see we have tons of development happening, especially for my listeners. You know, uh, I think the majority of my listeners live or work in downtown Chattanooga. And so you can, you can see there's, there's tons of development happening. And so how do we as citizens begin to think about that uh, from a more responsible perspective? Uh, and so, Jim, I know you have a, a pretty good dis- uh, concise definition of what is responsible development? Well, when we were putting together Chattanooga's for Responsible Development, we asked for a lot of input from the, the people who had been joining the group, and we came up with this vision. A Chattanooga where development balances and values the long-term needs of the city, its residents, and its businesses relative to the environment, the economy, and quality of life, and respects the communities in which it takes place. And a key word there is balance. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, it's, it's not like we don't want development to happen, right? <laughs> we, exactly. You know, we're, we're going to grow as a city. We're going to change as a city. Um, but we, we, we do want that to be good, and we want it to last, and we want it to be here for our kids to enjoy. Um, and so, you know, Eric, how, could you talk us through maybe some principles of uh, responsible development? In my neck of the woods, if, which is primarily urban, um, responsible development comes at urban form. Um, I love I love some of, you know, um, the terms that Jim mentioned. Long term, I think in order to be responsible, a building needs to respect the public realm, the streets that we all share as citizens of this city. We all share them. They're our shared um, living room, if you will, um, and. When we share them, when we put walls to those rooms that we share, those walls should have the highest quality and should be there, should known to be there for a long period of time. And so long term is something that I heard you say, Jim, and I agree with. And I think that um, building for lasting quality is, is responsible. That's, that's um, a very 
high-valued place to build from. Um, building for balance, and I heard, um, I also heard you say for residences and businesses, so that just one common interest is not met, right. but the common good is met in this in the development pattern. Mm -hmm. um, that's very important. Um, you know, building for the lowest common denominator has been really getting us nowhere. The lowest common denominator meaning the the smallest commercial interest or a single interest at the time. Um, it's really getting us nowhere, and we, we build more value for our cities, we build more value for our citizens, we solve so many of these larger banner issues when our development patterns are supporting and conducing uh, so much more activity in our public life. Yeah, and I really just want to give our listeners a visual representation of what you mean by that, like long-term um, and multiple uses and that kind of thing. If, if Listeners, if you'll think about our downtown and, and the restaurants that we have downtown, right? Um, you know, Christian Rushing, when he's on the podcast, we, we talked about this. Uh, you know, there's a Buffalo Wild Wings downtown. We love Buffalo Wild Wings, delicious food. We're glad that they invested in our community. The day they go out of business, that building is absolutely useless because it has been developed for a single use and it's their cookie cutter model of a restaurant. It will have to be torn down. Something will have to be rebuilt there. Um, so, so all of that, the energy and the money and any sort of tax break they got, which I don't know if they did, it's gone. I mean, look at the Applebee's. It's still sitting empty in our downtown. Whereas if you look at, I mean, God forbid, if Main Street meets or the terminal or Mean Mug or where we're at in the camp house, if any of those businesses go, those buildings are fantastic buildings that will get reused uh, for another purpose. They're not going to get torn down. They're going to be here for a really long time um, because they're, they're, they're built towards the urban form and they're not made for a specific use. I'd absolutely agree with that. The, the adaptive reuse of a building is something that you should think about when you're going through the process of creating a building. And in some cases, some of the more complex sites have created some of the more creative and interesting buildings. But I will also say that is the rare case. Most of the times when a KFC goes under, it's going to be replaced by maybe another fast food restaurant. But even then, a prototypical fast food restaurant has its very specific set. And they may say, well, I'll buy the lot next door that's a green site because it's cheaper to build on that than try to convert yep. this building that's, that's there. Absolutely. So, so, Eric, you were talking about long-term, you were talking about balance, um, and, I, and I wanted to insert that visualization, uh, but keep going. Well, I, you know, if I'm um, a developer uh, and I look at this, the reason it matters is that um, the, the five- and ten-year development cycle really isn't working anymore. We have so many demographic shifts that are culturally happening in our communities today and going on. Retail is struggling to keep up with online presence um, when... When Amazon can deliver a package to your door with a couple clicks, and um, I think retailers are across, across the country are struggling to uh, to fit this demand, and so building a highly specialized retail operation um, with a highly special specialized service um, is really starting to make a lot less sense. Um, you're starting to see large retailers really, really um, shudder at um, meeting this challenge when. Um, the opportunities for working from home are increased and they're ever increased year over year by our ability and our technology to expand and to make fiber available to your home um, where you can sit and work and just be just as productive as visiting a corporate office. That will also have a dramatic shift on our cities. And so all of these reasons I'm just bringing up to, to bring up the fact that it's important for us to build buildings to think about 
housing multiple uses for decades and for generations. It, it just makes sense. Yes, it has a first cost, which is higher, but over the long term, as an investor, if, if I'm an investor, which most of what we want in our cities are investments, that's the best long-term investment. I, I think you're exactly right, and I think related to that, you're mentioning Amazon. I think one of the impacts that Amazon, and I'd say in some ways the, the internet as a whole, uh, are having on us is we're becoming a sort of a convenience-oriented society. Uh, we are leaning more and more in the direction of we want you know, drive-through where we can call ahead or order ahead online and pick up on the way to or from work. Or even better, we don't even have to leave our house and it gets delivered to us, regardless of what type of product it is. So you know, if that's the way we're going, do we really need to have big stores? Well, I think that's a question that we already went through that in the 2000s, and we're going through it again, is that we started moving away from giant blocks like malls, and Chattanooga has two examples of dead malls, I believe. And so, what happens with those spaces and then they become these large blighted areas for communities. The other side of that is that a lot of that happened because you could go to these one-stop shops, Target, Walmart, these type of large retailers that are able to condense your space, which is ironic because if y'all are like me, you'll walk two miles in a Walmart for some reason, but you won't walk the one block from one store to another. You'll drive it, which is a problem, right, in terms of this development. We want to make a space, the responsible development is creating a space where it's a pleasant journey from one to the other and that you're able to go along that. But we're starting to see that now is with the number of offices, so not even retail, but office, more people telecommuting to work. Less people want to be in a standard 1980s office block with cubicles. They're looking for a different product. People are working from cafes. They're working from any place that they want, parks with Wi-Fi. So there's almost a change in the notion of what is a office space mm -hmm. in terms of do we need a 20-story building that has floor upon floor of offices? And for some products, we'll always need that. But for other products or tenants, we may not need that. So what does that look like and how do we provide those spaces as well? Yeah, and you know, a lot of uh, the development over the past 50 years couldn't have foreseen the sort of technological shifts that we just talked about, that Jim just mentioned. You know, and so I think a lot about the, the conversation around responsible development is also revolving around the word resiliency, right? So, so you know, talking, talking about building an adaptive building is, is actually talking about that building's resiliency to sort of, sort of withstand whatever the next technological wave is that we cannot foresee right now in the way that's gonna impact our city. Um, so yeah, I, th I think resiliency is a, is a really uh, fascinating word, and, and the folks at Strong Towns have, have done a lot um, to really explore what does it mean for a city to be resilient. So, sort of related to that is you know the ability to look long term, mm -hmm. and you know so often with some of the development projects that you know, I've been looking at, a lot of people will say, well look what else is on the street, yeah. as opposed to look what else could could be on the street mm. you know where they're looking at what's on the street currently as what's going to set the pace for the uh and the scene for the future versus you know how a new development could change the entire corridor the entire street the entire community yeah. so you know looking not just two years five years ten years down the road but thinking what could this be like 20 years ago and you also mentioned earlier you know in terms of you know that we're sort of at a um, you know, end of an era maybe, or we've sort of 
hit a, a critical mass of sorts. And I sort of feel the way it is today is a little bit like it was in Chattanooga just before I got here. But you know, when Walter Cronkite called us the, the dirtiest city in America, and people could have responded in one of two major ways. Uh, they could have felt sorry for themselves and felt defeated, or they could turn around and say, yeah. we're going to change that and we're going to be the cleanest city in America. And I think we're at a point right now where we've made some horrible mistakes over the last 20 or 30 years in terms of development, and we can either say, well, and there's nothing much we can do about it, or maybe now is the time that we can start really making those changes. Right, yeah. You know, Justin, as we you sort of talk about the, the development over the past 50 years, you know, a, a lot of the development we have um, is because of coding systems that we've created, right? Like zoning codes that we've created over the past 40 and 50 years. Um, so could you talk about the way that, 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 our, that our zoning codes uh, have kind of shaped our city? Right. So our zoning codes were created in the 1950s, early 60s, and kind of were created at a moment and a snapshot of what people wanted at that time, which is, I think, getting back to what Eric started at the very beginning, which is a segregation of uses. We wanted to have our residential over here and our commercial over there. But now more and more we're seeing, particularly in urban areas, but not just urban areas, is mix of uses. We want to be able to have our office with our retail. We want to be able to have our, our residence with our commercial uses. We want to have our restaurants next to our this and that. We want to be able to combine these type of uses, and our current code does not allow for it because it wasn't equipped to handle that type of development. And we've been band-aiding it for half a century. And that's where the form-based code kind of came in as a new zoning tool. And let me say that zoning is just a tool to try and reach a vision. So it was a new tool that created a different palette that we could paint with to try and set regulatory structures for what gets built. And it focused less on the uses and more on the form, which I think is what we're talking about here with develop, responsible yeah. development. Yeah, and so you know, if if y'all want to learn more about form-based code and, and, what, and what we're talking about there, we did an episode with Karen Hunt from the Regional Planning Agency on the form-based code that the city of Chattanooga, you know, in the downtown core, recently adopted. And and I said that this then, and I believe it now. Uh, there's nothing that's sort of been passed by city council in the past two years that will do more to shape the way our city looks and feels uh, over the next 25 years than that form-based code document. So I think it's incredibly important for people to understand that uh, and, and to understand the way that those sort of regulations shape what we get, right? Like it, it's really hard for us to, to complain about what we have uh, because a lot of times it's developers uh, living in to the boundaries that we set as a community. And so, you know, on that note, I really want to create this series that's talking about housing and development uh, as a way to sort of educate and empower uh, people in Chattanooga, empower the listeners of this podcast and, uh, and the people who live and care about Chattanooga uh, to think better about development and to get involved and to learn how they can have an impact on the sort of things that happen in our city, specifically when it comes to development, which oftentimes feels like something that's... Um, uh, it, it's so big that it's people in rooms in high office buildings making decisions, um, but the community can have a big say in what happens in our city. And so, Jim, I know you've played a big role in this here in Chattanooga uh, in creating your Facebook group, um, Chattanoogans for Responsible Development. And so I'd, I'd really like to just hear how that came about. How did you uh, get the idea to start that group? Um, yeah. Well, it started when I heard that some of my neighbors were having a, a big problem with basically uh, some trees potentially being cut down and steep slopes being cut into. 
And this is in North Shore? Uh, yeah, North, North Shore. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and there was a community meeting, and I went to it, and a lot of people said, well, you don't live in the neighborhood. What are you doing here? Not in a negative way. Yeah. Um, but I, I said, I view the neighborhood in a much larger sense. And out of that evolved uh, what was going to become uh, sort of a North Shore responsible development group. And the more I, I mentioned it and the more I heard from other people, uh, it really became much more, uh, it, we really needed it for it to be citywide. So it became Chattanoogans for Responsible Development. I created a group and, and put some, some ideas online. And within a very short period of time, we had hundreds, and I don't know where we are now, it's probably upwards of 500 uh, people there who are you know, concerned. They're people from pretty much every part of town. And what we're trying to do, and I, I know a few minutes ago I mentioned what our vision is, but I think our, our, mis our, our mission is also important, which is to give citizens more voice in development decisions, to ensure that decisions are driven with care and reason and for the long-term good of the community, and to hold developers and government accountable. And I would almost change that a little bit right now because it says to give citizens more voice in development decisions. And I'd say, you know, we have that voice. Yeah. We just need to be loud and show up. And when I say be loud, doesn't mean be disrespectful, but make your opinions known. Uh, I hear again and again from a lot of people in government and, uh, you know, the appropriate agencies that they need us to give them the, the, yeah. the political clout and the enthusiasm so they can do what really they've wanted to do for a number of years, but no one has spoken up in that direction. So sometimes it's really just a question of, of being loud and showing up. Yeah. And I know something, you know, uh, you, you've been pretty active now at, at different uh, planning meetings and city council and that kind of thing. Uh, and I remember something you, you've said is that you, you will never uh, just come out to complain, right? We'll talk about an issue and we'll offer recommendations. And I, and I really think that's important for people to understand that, um, especially especially your, this, this organization that you're representing, um, it, it's about offering alternative visions and solutions to things that we see as issues, uh, not just complaining about the fact that trees are getting cut down, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I, I will always remember when I went in front of uh, city council at the end of one of the city council meetings and I announced uh, that I just formed an organization called uh, Chattanoogans for Responsible Development. And you know, I looked at the city council members and I could see some tensed shoulders there. It's like, okay, what's coming next? And what I continued with is saying that one of my favorite sayings and one that I try to live by you know, is it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. Mm. And that would be the approach that we would be taking as an organization because it's really easy to complain. Yeah. But it's not that helpful just to complain. Well, I know if anybody goes onto the Facebook group, you know, you have, you guys have a list of goals. Um, and I, and I would love for you to share, maybe not, I think there's about a dozen of them, but, uh, talk about some of those goals that you guys have, Jim. You know, a lot of it comes, uh, it revolves around communications improve communications between neighborhoods on development issues and, uh, and opportunities, create more positive dialogues between developers in the community, between government agencies in the community, to share and identify best practices. You know, so it's, it's really improving the communication uh, because what I've found is that there are so many people who share the same views. And uh, you know, something that, that Eric told me 
several weeks ago and sort of changed my view of, of how to approach a lot of this is that you know, before you do anything, you really need to look at, at three key questions. You know, what, what do you want to protect? What do you want to preserve? And what do you want to promote? And if you get any number of people in a room, even those people who you would perceive as being on opposing sides, there's probably going to be huge overlap if you can ask those questions. And if you can then agree even 80% on, on the answers to those questions, then you can get on to the solutions. Um, you know, so start with the commonalities, and there are far more commonalities than there are differences. And that's something that probably could be said about a lot of things these days. A couple other goals I'd like to mention. Uh, protect our city's scenic assets. Uh, you know, we are the, the scenic city. We are known for being a beautiful place uh, with a focus on the outdoors. You know, if you go up on Lookout Mountain and look down on the city and all you see are, are buildings and streets and, and parking lots, we've destroyed the reason why many of us uh, stay here or came here. So I would say one of the biggest things that we need to do in an overarching way whether it's through responsible development or anything else, is protect our city's scenic uh, assets. And uh, you know, I'll, I'll use an example there, because a lot of people might say, well, how does that help us from a financial sense? And put tourism off to the side, and recreation even off to the side. Uh, I heard, and I do not know it to be true, that one of the reasons that Volkswagen came here was you know, they were looking at where a lot of, initially, they would have a lot of uh, German families and German students, and they would be going to school, uh, uh, you know, in Normal Park, and they drove around the North Shore, and they saw all these trees, this wonderful setting, and that was one of the selling points where they said, okay, you know, Chattanooga is where we, we should put our plant. I would say that if they were to drive around today, they would have put the plant someplace else. Hmm. Yeah, I think there's so, there's so there's so much about our city. Like, and this is what a great thing about it: you cannot monetize or commodify every aspect of a great community, right? Um, and and it's important for us to realize that because that is where um, that's where economics and and fiscal issues kind of almost reach a limit. And so there's there's so much um, so many natural assets, so many social assets about our city that get offered underutilized and under discussed and undervalued because you can't attach a dollar sign to it. Uh, and yet a lot of those things are the reason so many of us choose to live here. I would say uh, with the P3 uh, conversation that uh, one of the things, and I, I really appreciate Matt that you brought up Christian earlier. He and I often talked about um, what it, what it is to have a Southern quality of urbanism and so if you dissect those, that P3 kind of statement, uh, protect, promote, and prevent, um, it, it kind of looks like what, do you, what would the southern architecture front porch be in each one of those considerations? And um, one community might say, we want to promote outdoor living and people um, living lives in the public realm proximate to one another. Southern Porch does that. Or on the opposite side of uh, the equation, we want to protect our private lives by having a semi-public space at the entry to our home. And so what I'm trying to describe to you here is that there are design, the language that we all speak 
of our common lives. There are design considerations that can be given to each one of the answers to those questions. And so that should be a real confidence builder for people in our community that there's a way out of these larger complex issues that seem like, I don't agree with my neighbor about this, or I don't agree with that developer about this certain thing. We can, we can all agree on these things. And this is a, this is a proximate way of, of reaching a conclusion about how we agree on a shared narrative. You know, Justin, so much of the, the responsible development conversation, I think it does revolve around new spaces, like how are we going to continue to develop in the future? Uh, but that, it, but really, a good, a good conversation, a good perspective of responsible development is not just things that we're building new, right? It's, it's how, do we, um, how do we, you know, whether it's to preserve, protect, and promote stuff that we already have, right? So, um, you know, it, you talk about the, the, the discussion around responsible development beyond just new buildings. Absolutely. So responsible development doesn't have to mean, like you're saying, only new construction. There are many ways that you can intervene in existing spaces to make them better. And you would be surprised the number of building owners, developers, tenants who are so open to this concept. When we talk about things like if we say there's not enough green space, there's not enough shade, being able to put a planter out you'd be surprised how far you can go with that. We see small interventions on ML King with providing parklets where we take a parking space and turn it into outdoor seating. Taking advantage of that and reclaiming that public realm is something that we can do outside of even the private realm and in our public's, in public right-of-way. But even beyond that is just because a space is built in a way that we feel today does not add to the collective value of the area doesn't mean that's the way it has to has to stay. There are beautiful examples of adaptive reuse on old industrial sites that are going to be coming back in Chattanooga and be adding more value back to those communities by changing their uses and re-engaging with the communities they're in, identifying how we deal with multiple interactions between communities and their neighboring commercial uses, softening those lines between them so that there's more of an enjoyable space between them are interactions that we can take right now. Um, I believe a group had somebody from Tactical Urbanism in just last year to talk about small interventions. Better Block has been here to talk about small interventions. Um, I mean, you can pick up a, the thing you see right now a lot of is people picking up a pallet and turning it into a chair and putting it next to a place they like to eat. Something as simple as that. Yeah, and I think that's a really good spot to end because the conversation about responsible development in our community uh, is, is going to be a conversation about uh, sort of the, the, the giant new apartment complexes that are popping up. It's going to be a conversation about uh, what do we want with big, big box stores when they come to our community. But it's also going to be what do we want uh, for our neighborhoods and our neighborhood streets um, and our historic areas. Um, how can we, how can we pre begin to preserve, protect, and promote what it is we want our community to develop into? So thank you all for being here and, uh, and, and taking part in this conversation on responsible development. Thanks, thank man. you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much to Eric, Jim, and Justin for taking time to really help us begin this conversation about housing and development here in Chattanooga and really look at what is responsible development to give us some ideas of how do we, how do we identify that, how do we advocate for that. 
And so in the show notes of this episode, we have a lot of different links from the Chattanooga Design Studio to the Chattanoogans for Responsible Development Facebook group. And I've thrown in a few more resources that if this is something that's interesting to you, that you want to learn more about what does responsible development look like in cities, I put some other links in there to organizations like Strong Towns that we mentioned in the podcast. So this has been the first episode of this series. We're going to be back with our next one. It's going to be a conversation about housing with Chattanooga Neighborhood Enterprise. So be looking forward to that. As always, thank you all for tuning in and listening. I would love for you to share this episode with a friend. We want to pull as many people in Chattanooga into this conversation about responsible development so that together we can answer those three P's that we talked about in the episode. What do we want to protect? What do we want to prevent? And what do we want to promote? You know, what is it that our community wants? What is it that our community wants to grow into? We have the power and the ability to shape the future of our city. That's what this conversation is all about. So please go to thecamphouse.com slash podcast and share this episode with a friend. Until next time, I hope you all have a great week.